It's time to accelerate. Hey, friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 738 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. Hey, I have another great show lined up for this week. Joining me as my guest on this week's episode is Ian Altman. Ian is co-author of a book titled Same Side Selling, How Integrity and Collaboration Drive Extraordinary Results for Sellers and Buyers. Ian's just out with the second edition of the book, just re-released it, and or released the second edition. And this is as well Ian's second visit to Accelerate. So we're looking forward to talk with him because we're going to be talking about integrity in sales. Um, and we're going to explore how you can aim for the results your clients have in mind as well as sell with integrity and build trust with them. And we're also going to get into some of the default sales behaviors, including some unthinking sales management behaviors that really diminish your integrity in the eyes of your buyers and can really work against you in a sales process. Uh, Ian's also going to go into details about his decision quadrant. And this is a great questioning framework he's developed for a salesperson to use to make sure they really develop a detailed understanding of what their buyers want to achieve. And this is a great tool as well for a sales manager to use to quickly understand where a deal stands and also come to an understanding if the rep really knows where the deal stands. It's all about asking the right questions about what a successful outcome looks like for your client, which, as everyone knows, is so important in sales success. So all that and much, much more with Ian. But before we get to Ian, let me talk to you about VanillaSoft. VanillaSoft is the industry's leading sales engagement platform, and they know that sales today is all about speed. And that's why you need to download their guide on how to optimize your speed to lead. That's the title, how to optimize your speed to lead. And you can get it now at VanillaSoft.com forward slash Andy Paul. That's VanillaSoft.com forward slash Andy Paul. Because unlike traditional offerings, VanillaSoft does things a little bit differently. They've eliminated that list that cherry pickers love. Uh, Each sales development rep automatically gets fed the next best lead based on that moment in time. VanillaSoft instantly react to external triggers like buyer intent data and then push those leads to the front of the queue and they automatically revise your lead cadence for your entire team when management shifts their priorities such as that usual end of quarter push to hit your target. It's all about speed. So download VanillaSoft's guide that will teach you how to optimize your speed to lead. Get your copy now at VanillaSoft.com forward slash Andy Paul, VanillaSoft.com forward slash Andy Paul. All right, let's jump into it. Ian, welcome to the show. Andy, I must have done something right if you've you've invited me back. It's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And you already said this is one of the best days of your life. So um, Absolutely. Yeah, there's something special about coming on the show. So how's how's things been? You've got a new new version of your book, Same Side Selling, that's out. We do. We do. So the second edition of Same Side Selling, it's been in airport bookstores recently and um, has been uh, met with pretty, um, pretty, pretty good success. So we're pretty happy about it. And it's the second edition and talking all about integrity and collaboration. So, oh, good. Well, so let me ask you a question. So when you're thinking about writing a book, why sort of do a second edition as opposed to a different book, different title? Well, it's funny. We actually, we actually, Jack and I actually talked about it. It's like, well, let's do a whole new book. And we said, you know what? So many of the core principles are relevant. It's just, they need some updating. And there were some gaps and things that 
after we release the book, and I think this happens with every concept and every yep. author, yep. is you you write something, it, you publish it, and then immediately after you publish it, you go, oh, we should have added this one thing, or three months later, you come up with it. And there's some core concepts in same-side selling that weren't there that we felt should be there. And there were some things that were there that we thought were brilliant that upon further review, we said those weren't really necessary <laughs> and they don't add value to the reader. And, um, and the interesting thing is that we were able to do it in such a way so that people who had the Kindle version or the audiobook version, Audible, we could make it so they would automatically get the new version without having to buy it. And so the funny part is that from a commerce standpoint, I guess we were stupid. But in terms of serving our audience, I think we did a good thing by releasing a version that we could then automatically update for people. Excellent. Well, I mean, that sort of leads into a topic we want to talk about, which was integrity and sales. Um, I mean, you, this is a core thing that you, you label yourself as sort of an integrity-based sales expert. So what does integrity in sales mean for you? Well, so if, if you think about kind of the different personas there are in sales, we have, the, we have your order taker, who's the person who the client just says, look, here's what I need. How much is it? When can you get it to me? You have the salesperson who believes their job is to sell whatever it is to sell, whether the client needs it or not. And then you have the subject matter expert. The subject matter expert is the person who the client would actually pay to speak with if that's what it took to tap into their expertise mm-hmm. as a trusted advisor. So the order taker in most businesses has been replaced by Amazon because there are places in the world where you and I could probably order something when we start this conversation to be delivered before we're done Mm -hmm. at at the lowest price. And that's pretty tough to compete with. So now we have the salesperson and the subject matter expert. And it doesn't matter what people think they are. What you have to ask yourself is, if you're the client, who do you want to deal with? And ultimately, people want that subject matter expert who they can trust And the subject matter expert is focused on the results that you need, not what they're selling. So, for example, if you went to a doctor and the doctor diagnosed a condition that they aren't good at addressing, what's Mm -hmm. a good doctor going to do? They're not going to say, well, yeah, just pay me and I'll give it a shot. No, the good physician says, let me refer you to somebody who can do this better than I can. And it's the same sort of thing in sales, which is too often people are focused on what they're selling instead of thinking about what's the client trying to solve. And if right. we can tap into what they're trying to solve, then all of a sudden we have the same goal and the same finish line in mind that they do. And so this idea of getting on the same side is all about working in, in tandem, in parallel with your client to achieve a common result, which incidentally happens to involve your product or service if you're the one delivering the result for them. Yeah, and where, for me, where the integrity in that comes in is, as you described, is if you truly are service-oriented then uh, and trying to help the customer achieve a result, then your actions and your words are in alignment, right? Exactly, exactly. So there's nothing at odds. And one of the things I often ask in, in groups of salespeople, I, I, I speak at a lot of events and deliver a lot of keynote addresses, and I'll ask people, well, so if we think of the buyer-seller interaction as a race and the starting block is the initial contact, what do we call the finish line? Mm-hmm. And people shout out the sale, the close, the contract. There's usually some accounting guy who says the check clearing, getting right, paid. Right. But then I ask them, so what would your client say is the finish line? Do you think your client would say the sale or the contract or paying you is the finish line? No. The client would say, well, it's getting the results that we were buying into. 
Yeah. So over. if yeah, so if you're focused on the same results as your client, to your to your point, there will be total alignment and you're going to build a lot of trust and confidence because they say, "Wow, they keep asking us questions about the results and the outcomes, not asking about who's going to sign off on this." Wow, this is someone we may want to deal with. Well, so let me ask a question because this is one that I I post groups that I talk to and and work with and it's it's along the sort of same line and it I think you'd be well suited to answer is that you know take for instance yeah you've had this conversation you start telling the customer hey you know we're we're on the same side we're trying to achieve and we're here to serve but yeah, and the sales manager says yeah we're going to be a little short this month so John go out and offer somebody a 20% discount if they sign this month you know and it's suddenly you you've told the customer we're there to serve but eh, Really, we're here to get the order because you know we need this order this week. Can you? Okay, what can we do to make this happen this week? And suddenly, the integrity goes out the window. <clears throat> well, and and so the, the the problem with that is that when when you're when all of a sudden the sale becomes more important to you than the results, mm-hmm. that becomes perfectly clear. And here's here's the way I would phrase that question. So they what they're saying to the, what they're saying to the salesperson is go out and offer discounts so we can bring in this deal with this client. So how much less would the client have to pay for it to be a good deal, but they don't get the results that they need? Right? I mean, they'd have to pay 100% less because if you don't get the results you need, it's not a good deal. It's like if you're going on vacation with your family and you've got five people and you rented a minivan and you get there and they have a two-seater, the first thing goes to your mind is, all right, how much would the divorce cost if I took the two-seater, one of our kids, and headed off for the weekend? I can't abandon the kids because the police will come after me, but I'll leave my, I'll leave my spouse with the kids. Maybe this, And then quickly you realize, well, it doesn't matter if they gave me the car for free. It doesn't serve my needs because I really need this five-passenger plus vehicle and all of our luggage. So the two-seater doesn't really help me, even if they gave me the Corvette for free. So the great misnomer is that all of a sudden it's like the client who didn't want to buy from you because they didn't see the results, they didn't see it was important enough to solve, all of a sudden, oh, well, if it's less expensive, I'll buy it. So the only way that works is if you get the price so low that someone says, well, even if it doesn't work, who cares? Well, and I don't think that's a good client. Well, I don't think so either. But I, I was really phrasing a little bit different question, which is, okay. is, is I see this all the time, and you, I'm sure you do as well, is, is really the question was, the customer is going to close anyway. They're going to close the next week. Right, yeah. but we're going to give them a discount to get them to close this week, and in the process, we submarine the relationship we've built with them, and really exposed ourselves for what we are, which is, yeah, we don't really care about the relationship so much. We care about the order, and it doesn't mean you're not going to get the order, but that ongoing relationship with the customer is forever tainted by that. And yeah, I think, and, and I, and this is, I've been in the situation where I've, I've gone out and. Yeah, I've been sent by managers early in my career. I you know, did the proverbial sitting on the customer's car until they came out of the office to get the order, yada, yada, yada. But it is, it's self-defeating in the long run. And I'm just wondering your thoughts on how do, how do we change that? Well, I think part of it is, I mean, it's, it's part of the traps of public companies or um, institutionally funded companies, which is people are, re- are reporting based on quarterly numbers. So what happens mm-hmm. is someone says, well, gee, we would rather have, you know, have $4 million in sales come in this quarter at a lower margin than we would to have $4.3 million come in, but 300000 of it trickled into 
the next week of the next quarter. Right. Right. Cause, cause they're willing to discount a certain amount. And the reality is that what I often say to people is, so when you discount, what percentage of that discount was profit? And the answer is a hundred percent. Yeah. So you're discounting pure profit straight off the top. And part of it is that when people don't really know why deals are going to be confirmed, why you're going to win business, then what happens is they start guessing and they say, well, maybe the client would pay if it was less. So I'll give you a perfect example. We did a renovation of our house um, a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And the we had, we had an original contractor. We ended up having to terminate, get a new contractor, had to sue the original contractor. It was a mess. Um, I wrote an article on my column in Inc. that was, um, it was home renovation nightmare. What HGTV doesn't tell you, right? <laughs> and it was a mess. So, so I contacted a, um, I contacted a buddy who was a general contractor. I was the de facto general contractor at this point, trying to finish this project. And literally, we had our house ripped down to studs and subfloor. I mean, we were redoing everything in the house on the main level. And so I, I asked a buddy. I said, "Hey, do you know of a good electrician?" He says, "Yeah, I got a guy." So introduces, introduces, introduces me to this guy, Jason. Jason comes out and Jason set, looks at everything, has a really innovative approach for how he's going to solve all of our electrical issues and says, yeah, I can do all this. It's 12500 I said, that's great. We're about six weeks from needing you. Is there an agreement we need to put in place or whatever? Jason says, no, no, we're, we're good. That's fine. Six weeks, it fits my schedule fine. So Jason apparently forgets about this. Three weeks later, Jason calls up and says, hey, Mr. Altman, I haven't heard from you. And I've been looking at this thing and I you know, would really like the business. I could do it for 11 grand. I said, well, that's really nice. But um, we're about three weeks away from starting this project. Um, the electrical side, I'll, I, you know, I, you know, you're a guy. We'll definitely let you know. Two weeks later, Jason calls up and says, hey, Mr. Altman, you know, really, this is an ideal project. This other work that we had is, um, is going to be wrapping up. And if you'll start this thing next week, I can do it for 9500 I said, that's, that's great. We'll see you next week. Now, here's the interesting part. Jason told me 12.5. I had put in my spreadsheet for the project 15 grand. Mm-hmm. Okay. So at, towards the end of the uh, end of this electrical project, his guys aren't showing up. They're not completing the project. I reached out to him. I said, Jason, dude, you know, what's going on here? He says, you know, look, you've already paid 7,500 of it. There's 2,000 left. There's just no money in these types of projects. There's no margin in them. You can probably find somebody else to finish it for less than the two grand. Now, the funny part is I would have happily paid the man $15,000. In his mind, the reason I wasn't moving forward was because of the price. price. Yeah. And the reality is, dude, the framing inspection hasn't been done. I can't have you start the electrical until the framing's done. So we're not ready for you to start this project. And if you had paid attention and taken notes, you would have known that. You would have given me an agreement the day I said, let's move forward. And you probably, if we were smart, would have asked some questions. And I would have agreed to a contract that was 15 grand. And he would have made money on the project. And it was just, it was one of those interesting things where great guy and did, and did fantastic work. But what, so what happened was because he kept discounting his price, he didn't have the margin to right. properly service the account. So and now all of a sudden he was resenting the project. And I was like, dude, I was happy to pay you twice what I paid you. <laughs> yeah. You're saying I don't, I, I didn't negotiate again. You negotiate against yourself. Exactly. Well, that's the funny part. I'm sure, I'm sure Jason's version of the story is, well, this guy is an author on sales, just like beat me up in negotiation. <laughs> it's like, dude, 
I all I said was okay because literally I was in a mode where someone a contra, someone come out with a good reputation and say, "Yep, this piece of the project would be fifty grand." I'm like, "Great!" Like I found a guy who can finish this project. I don't care what it costs; just has to be done right. Because I was so hyper aware of the disaster that had happened before that I just wanted people I could trust and could do good work. And candidly, that's what our clients are mostly looking for. Well, and I think that one of the real issues is, and I've raised this again with when I work in smaller groups with sales managers, sales, have you ever calculated the ROI on that discount you gave to close the deal on Friday versus bringing it on Monday? Exactly. And it never, it never occurs to anybody because you were sort of stuck in these, these modes of operation that, you know, I contend are a hundred plus years old, right? We basically managed sales the same way we did a century ago instead of saying, why don't we be smarter about this? Well, well, it's, it's a funny thing because, with the with the organizations that I work with, oftentimes people say, "Oh, yeah, we we can't do any type of workshop or program towards the end of the quarter because guys are pushing to close business." And and I just shake my head and I'm thinking, "Okay, this is an underperforming company." And the top performing companies, it's like, "Well, listen, you guys want to avoid the end of the month, the end of the quarter? No, we don't care if it, if right. if if it's already not if it's not already teed up and ready to, ready to to get inked." By that time, there's nothing our guys are doing on the 28th that's going to make it happen um, that shouldn't have been done two months prior. So, yeah, we don't care what the date is. And that's really a cultural thing, I believe. Yeah, you know, I've been in organizations where you know, we were committed to not doing you know, this bad behavior at the end of months, end of quarter, and focusing on you know, being relaxed. And for the most part, it works if you can do it. It starts at, the top. It starts at the top. Absolutely. Yeah, it definitely does. So um, let's talk about quadrants because you were talking, this is something that's new in your book, Same Side Selling, and I was looking at a couple of your videos online about this. So explain what your same side quadrants are. And it's it's a great tool for, well, for lots of things, qualifying and, and doing deal reviews and so on. Yeah, so I, I've done research with over 10,000 CEOs and executives on how they make and approve decisions. And I put them through an exercise where I say, okay, look, here, here here's a scenario. Someone on your team comes to you and says, hey, we want to buy this thing. Costs $20,000, takes 45 days for them to implement it, no resources on your part, and they give you a 10-year guarantee. What are the five questions you have to have answered to be comfortable making an informed decision to either approve or deny the request? Then in these groups, I say, okay, now reduce them from five to three. And the interesting thing is, no matter the size of the company, no matter where they are geographically, the only place I haven't tested this is the African continent. Hmm? So if you have a big audience from the African continent, <laughs> I don't know if this works there, but otherwise that and Antarctica, they're on their own. Otherwise, well, we're we, we got a lot of penguins. So listen, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's uh, and I thought it was just people wearing tuxedos. So <laughs> so the, the 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 interesting thing is that people ask the same three questions, no matter where they are and what the size of their business is. And the questions are. What problem does this solve? Why do I need it? And what's the likely outcome or result? Mm-hmm. The distant fourth in that is what are the alternatives? But we know that if we answer those other three questions really well, that fourth one on what are the alternatives becomes implied. So we know that we need, our, in order for our clients to buy, they need to reach that conclusion of what problems it solve, why do I need it, and what's the likely outcome or result? What we also find is that people, they, they come out of meetings and they're not sure what's a good meeting. So if you ask somebody, and I'm sure you see this with, with organizations you work with, you say, oh, man, how was, how'd that meeting go today? They go, oh, man, I got to tell you, Andy, it was the best meeting. 
Yeah, you're talking about sales, salespeople coming out of yeah, me. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Salespeople coming out of me and executives for that matter. Oh, the meeting was great. Really? What made it great? Well, we were scheduled to only meet for 20 minutes. And we met for two hours. We met for two <laughs> hours. Exactly. Oh, my God. It was amazing. And I got to tell you, the two of us, man, what, what, when we got together, we just, we clicked. Yeah. We connected. And the meeting went so well that we've agreed that next week we've already scheduled a time to meet again. And that would be a great way to evaluate a good meeting if it had been set up on match.com. But but it's not a great way to evaluate a business meeting. And so what was frustrating to us is in Same Side Selling, in the first edition, we'd lay out these principles, the types of questions people should ask. And sometimes they did it and sometimes they didn't. And I was working with with a client. So I'd done a workshop for somebody and working with a client. and. And they said, well, so help me understand what we need to capture. I said, look, it's just four key pieces of information. It's really simple. I said, just think of it like this. And I I literally, on a blank sheet of paper, drew a vertical line down the center, Mm -hmm. horizontal line across. I said, look, you know, just when you're taking notes in in this upper left box, Take notes about the issue, which is what is it the client's trying to solve? You know, what, what problem are they trying to solve? Now, in the upper right quadrant, um, let's take notes about what the impact is or how important it is for them to solve it. So what happens if they don't solve this problem? Then the lower left, let's take notes about what the results need to be and what success should look like. In the lower right, have you ever had that situation where you think the deal is done and someone's name pops up you've never heard of yet? In the lower right, we're going to take notes about who else is involved. Mm-hmm. And who else needs to be included in this process? And then I looked at the sheet of paper and went, wow, that should have been in the book. Yeah, that is, that is, <laughs> because, that is the book, right. Yeah, because now it's what I'm probably best known for is these same side quadrants. And it's something that at a client of mine just, just this last week sent a note. We had done a workshop with them a month ago. And I always tell people, look, it's going to take 120 days till you start seeing results. And kind of note from from one of the one of the managers who says, "Yeah, I just got this note from my team." He says, "Yes, we went in there and we followed the quadrants with this client." And keep in mind, this is an organization; their typical sales cycle is fifteen to eighteen months. Mm -hmm. They said, "Well, so um, and and this is you and I are recording this in mid November, right? And um, and so this is you know first week in November. We had done this workshop in middle of October, and um, and they said, "Yeah," and so we've got so based on just following the quadrants the client is really excited about us moving forward on this project. And it's about three quarters of a million dollars that they are anticipating is going to close in the first half of December. And so all of a sudden it just compresses everything. Why? Because these quadrants of issue in the upper left, impact importance, the upper right results in the lower left and others impact in the lower right. Those align directly to the upper left issue is what problem are they trying to solve? The upper left impact is why they need to solve it and why is it so important to solve it now? The lower left of results is what happens if we do, what, what does success look like? How do we measure success going forward? And then that others impacted is a question that most people don't ask. So usually they say, well, who's the decision maker? Right. The problem with asking that question is it's like if I was asking you, it'd be like, well, Andy, clearly the, the company wouldn't wouldn't give you the authority to do this. So who is the decision maker? It's instantly adversarial. <laughs> but instead, if I said, well, so who else is most directly impacted by this issue you're facing? Who else would have the, a strong opinion about how we measure success and what that looks like? Now, all of a sudden, they've got all that information. So the funny part was this client in this note, they said, yeah, so we followed the questions. Here it was. And, and here's the rep saying, here's the, here's the problem they're trying to solve. Here's what happens if they don't solve it. Here's what success looks like. And here are the other two people 
who we need to get buy-in from in order for this to happen. And it was like, you know, and they said, yeah, it was a 40-minute meeting. Mm-hmm. That's a three-quarter million dollar deal that's mm-hmm. going to close in 45 days instead of closing in, you know, 75 weeks. <laughs> right? So um, needless to say, it's a, it's a good-sized organization who has, we, we were testing this, this um, same size song philosophy in two of their two small business units. Right. And now they're saying, well, so how do we expand this everywhere else quickly? Um, but it's just, it's not rocket science. It's just, right. you know, it's, it's, it's all about keeping stuff simple so that people can execute it. Well, it's also about, uh, this may be the wrong word, but it's also about certitude, right? I mean, you're, what you're doing is you say you're forcing people to say, come up with an answer to this question. Right. Yeah. It's, it's this, the answer may change yeah, as you go down because you know, customers evolve, needs evolve as you sell to them. But as a seller, you need to understand the answer to these, as you said, very simple questions. Yeah. And without that framework, unfortunately, it's the way most reps go because they're afraid to ask those questions, is they're flying blind. Absolutely. And, and what, what we'll do actually is, um, since, since I need to send you some stuff anyhow, I'm going to send you um, a couple extra of these same side quadrant journals. Mm-hmm. And then for listeners who ask you a great question or share something or post something, you'll have a couple you can send out to oh, them perfect. as Sounds well. Like great so, they get the, uh, so they get the quadrant journals. I mean, it's, it's something that is, um, it, it's, it's funny because in this one client that had a sales operation said, you know, it's, it's, when I first heard it, it was like, well, this is really simple. He said, then I started seeing the results. It was like, <laughs> wait, it's simple enough that people can actually use it and apply it. Well, and I think that is the challenge in sales, right? It's, it's, it's not like there's really necessarily anything new, but it's yeah. like, how can you take what we know and present it in a way that's, that's practical and usable for people? Which, unfortunately, you know, look at so many of the sales processes these companies develop these days, and it's like, yeah, why? Why are you doing this? How's, that, yeah. how's, how's this benefiting your buyer? And there seems yeah. to be completely unmindful about that. Whereas the quadrants, actually, yeah, if you're asking the questions in the right way, they help the buyer also define what they're trying to achieve in a way yeah. that they weren't before. Yeah, the, the other thing to think about is that so many things that people are taught in sales is try and get this information, but it's not information that you would be able to openly share with the client because you're, in essence, trying to manipulate the client. Mm-hmm. And the the quadrants you can share in total transparency. If the client says, "Well, so what's 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 that what's that template you're using?" Oh, we're trying to understand what problem you're trying to solve. Make sure we understand why it needs to be solved and why it's important to solve, and then what success looks like, so we can hand that off to our team to make sure we actually deliver those results. You can hold us accountable. Is that okay? The client goes, "Yeah." <laughs> why doesn't everyone do this? Mm-hmm. Well, and it just and it's funny because. For the, for the client example I'm thinking of for last week, they actually created a slide in a, in a, in a follow-up um, follow to the client that said, here's our understanding of what we heard. Is that right? And the client said, yeah, actually, you articulated better than we did ourselves. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm. And, and it's funny because they, if you'll notice in the story, they, they weren't spending time talking about their products and services. They were talking about what was important to the client. And I think that's a pivotal step that most people miss, which is, Organizations invest a ton of resources on training people about product knowledge, but they don't spend the time teaching people how to ask the right questions to find out whether or not the problem is worth solving to begin with. Among other things, right? I mean, I think. Among that, other things, <laughs> yeah. So I think uh, to me, I, 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 
couldn't agree more. Is is it sort of goes back to where companies sort of start this problem, which is they hire the wrong people. Right, so we look at a, a prototype of salespeople, and you still see job listings today. Look, we want to hire an extrovert, we want to hire a, a hunter, we want to, you know, all these all these <laughs> adjectives that have no value at all to the customer. Yeah, I, I pose a question. I love posing with when I talk to groups. I say, oh, "What's the one question a customer will never ask you?" And everybody's sort of silent. They said, "They'll never say, hey, could you be more salesy?'" Exactly. <laughs> right? You're never going to hear somebody say that. That's uh, so, But we hire people to that, unfortunately, still, to sort of these stereotypical virtues and values, quote-unquote virtues and values, that in your model, the quadrants bring no value to the customer. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and and the reason why clients buy is not because – Oh, well, this guy ordered a great wine and a steak. And, you know, so I'm going to stake my future reputation on this dinner this person schmoozed <laughs> yeah. me at. No, they say, wow, you know what? This person really understands what we're trying to solve, why we need to solve it, why it's so important. And we're totally in sync about what the results are that we're trying to achieve together. Okay, this is the person I think I want to work with. I mean, yeah. That's, it's a simple concept. Right. It's not easy, but it's simple. Yeah, I think it, I think it is simple. And I think this is one of the things that, Interestingly, over the last year or two, just actually seeing if you, you know, follow what's going on, sort of online LinkedIn discussions and so on, is there's this this skepticism about relationships and sales in many yeah. quarters, and it's like, yeah, you can't deny the fact that that's what you're building because you can't, at least in my way of thinking, and I've written about this extensively, is trust can't exist in the absence of a relationship. So yeah. what, what is that relationship? To your point, it's not about schmoozing. It's about somebody saying, look, I, ne- I need your expertise. And so do I trust you enough to give you the power to influence me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's my, my buddy Phil Jones says that sales is largely earning the right to make a recommendation. It is. To some degree, absolutely. Well, I, yeah. I, I phrase it a little bit differently, but I mean, sure. yeah, people give you the power to influence them. Yeah. And that requires a relationship. But it yeah. does, it's not a relationship of, hey, let me take you out to dinner and you know, pound wine and steaks, you said, or, or sure. golf. Which I think is what scares people when you talk about relationships, because they think it's, it somehow has to be at that level instead of something that's much more personal and human than that. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, you know what, if if the person who is selling is helping the person in that position overcome a problem, become more successful, um, enrich their own personal life because of that, have a greater career trajectory, guess what? You now have a relationship with that person. But it's because you're delivering for them. You know, if they wanted a friend, they'd get a puppy. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if they wanted that unconditional friend... They just okay. I got a rescue dog, and wow, this dog loves us forever. But if they fundamentally, what the client's saying is, "Are you going to help me be successful?" And if I believe that you are aligned with what I'm trying to achieve, and if I believe that you have the track record and and ability to get me there, then I'm inclined to do business with you. But if I think you're just trying to sell me something, then I get this. I give the same response that I give to somebody when you walk into a a, um, a retail store and they say, may I help you? And we say, no, 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 thanks. Just looking. And the reason why we say that is because we're convinced that that person is not looking out for us or looking out for themselves. 
But if all of a sudden we believe they're actually looking out for my interest ahead of their own, then that's the person I go to all the time. There's, there's a guy sure. who we've taken our vehicles to for repairs. And the reason why we trust this guy so much is years ago, something came up with the car. We brought it to him and he said, and I, I said, look, you know, we, we were, we were actually buying a car out of a lease, mm-hmm. went to this guy, Jeff, and said, hey, you know, the dealer says it needs $2,000 of repair, but, you know, we figured it'll be less with you. And he said, well, not only will it be less, but you don't need any of this work. <laughs> so it'll be a lot less. So it's going to be zero. And, um, and in fact, that's, that's criminal. They shouldn't be doing this. And it was interesting because I reached out to the dealer and the dealer said, well, I mean, I find that hard to believe. And I said, great, because my guy said, he's more than welcome to host you at his shop and you can come take a look at it. And the GM for the dealership said, at that point, I knew I was toast because <laughs> if your guy was willing to have us out there, I knew that my guys had done something wrong and they came out and took a look and, you know, the dealership just fell on their sword and said, what can we do for you? Right. And, and by the way, that guy no longer works here, et cetera. But it was just, it was a classic example of total lack of integrity, but the guy on the other side, had such high integrity that for me, it's like, I'll ask this guy for advice and questions and bring work to him that isn't necessarily in his wheelhouse just because I trust him that much. Right. So final question then is, how do we hire for integrity? Well, so it's an interesting thing. I think think it's a part of it is a culture issue, which is if your business doesn't operate with integrity – then just hiring somebody who does have integrity isn't going to work. Because Mm -hmm. if you're still motivated around things that are manipulative, then you hire the person who's focused on the client's results. um, They're not going to last long because they're going to feel slimy. But one of the things that you can, you can ask questions like, so what do you do if what you've got to sell isn't the best fit for the client? And the correct answer is, well, then you point them in the right direction. You try and find a better prospect. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, that's the correct answer. But a lot of it just comes down to it's a double-edged sword. It's not just hiring. It's also leading people in a way it's integrity-based. It's, it's being able to acknowledge that, look, some opportunities are not the right fit. In fact, more than half the ones we uncover won't be the right fit. So we just need to focus our efforts on the ones who are a good fit and make sure that, above all, we're, we're nodding our heads about, yes, we can deliver the results this client needs, not we can make this sale. Right. And once we do that, then we're going to attract those people. I mean, I get people all the time in, um, in my community who say, hey, I'm looking for a new position. Who else, um, who can you recommend me to who follows the same side selling methodology? Because I've worked in too many places where I need like a case of Purell each week just to get through the week. I mean, that's, you know, so sure. yeah. you know, a lot of times it's leadership who says to people, well, you just need to bring in sales at all costs. Well, it, that's a short-term mindset. It's not a long-term mindset. And so you need to hire the right people. You need to mentor, mentor them properly and ask the right questions during the interview process. But once they're there, you need to make sure you're supporting them and getting to the right place, not just focused on bringing in a sale, even if it's not the right sale. Okay, love it. I mean, I'd, I'd love to have you come back and have a longer conversation about uh, something I referred to earlier in the conversation about sales management. Because I, I feel like, we really substantially haven't changed how we manage and measure sellers forever. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think there are many professions that are sort of leading the way and in, in their performance-based, like sports teams and so on, performance-based mm-hmm. organizations that 
have become much more specialized and much more advanced in terms of how they manage performance, improve performance, and so on, develop people, the people, sure. that we could take lessons from in sales. And I'd love to have that conversation. Absolutely. And I'd be happy to. One of the, one of the things that some of my top-performing clients do is they actually have, as part of the compensation package, a measurement of results, meaning you have to get something back in writing from the client that says, yes, we've achieved or exceeded the results that we anticipated in the time frame mm-hmm. we discussed, and their portion of their compensation is based on that. See, I love it. I mean, And I it's just all of a sudden it's like, oh, you mean we actually have to deliver? Okay. Sure. And along with that, yeah, I've, I've got one client that has uh, incentive tied to learning. Right. Yeah. yeah. How much are people willing to invest in their own development? Because it's it's not all going to come from experience. It has to there has to be more to it than just that. Sure. Um, so yeah, we can have that conversation. But so before I go, tell people how they can find out more about your your new book and connect with you. You know what? So on Amazon, just about anywhere, it'd be same side selling. You go to samesideselling.com. and for me, it's just Ian Altman on just about all the uh, social media outlets, and it's just ianaltman.com. All right. Excellent. All right, Ian. Thanks a lot for joining us again. Andy, always a pleasure. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Okay, friends, that was Accelerate for this week. First of all, as always, I want to thank you for joining me. And I want to thank my guest, Ian Altman, for coming back, visiting us again. Join me again next week as my guest will be Kimberly Slavik. Kimberly is the author of a book titled Visnostic Sales and Marketing, The Power of Visual Diagnostic Statements, a neuroscientific approach to communicating, training, selling, marketing, and leading. You definitely want to check that out, so be sure to join us then. And before you go, don't forget to visit andypaul.com and get your copy of my sales growth planner for 2020. Now, in the planner, I walk you through a step-by-step process to create an incredibly effective sales plan They'll help you hit your numbers and hit your targets in 2020. Now, this is the same sales planning format that I've used throughout my career to generate hundreds of millions in revenue. So make sure you get yours. Before, uh, for more information, visit andypaul.com forward slash planner. That's andypaul.com forward slash planner to get your copy. Thanks again for joining me. Until next week, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. <laughs>